are spending our summer going through the book of Acts. And if you are not familiar with the Bible, and that's okay, um, today's actually a great day because we're going to experience something um, that the church experienced, or we're going to read about something the church experienced for the very first time. Um, and before I kind of tell you what that is, I want to give you a little backstory to what we're going to read. Uh, the story of kind of the, I guess the story of God more so. Uh, Old Testament before Jesus, lots of people, lots of prophets, lots of things that happened. Um, eventually a guy named Jesus uh, stepped foot on the scene. If you're not familiar with much of the Old Testament, uh, the, the nation of Israel, which was the God squad in the day, had continually been rebellious, continually run away from God. In fact, when we sang that song, um, that's something that I identify with because um, it says, your love is running after, running after, running after me. Um, what's implicit in that is that uh, we continually run away from and run away from and run away from God. So God has to continually run after. It's not like we're just both in a field, you know, frolicking together and we just kind of come together and God's like, I love you. And it's like, I love you too. It's oftentimes the opposite. It's, you know, I know what I ought to do. I know what God has called me to do, but then I don't necessarily do it. But in light of the fact that the nation of Israel had continually been rebellious, God did something extraordinary. He sent his only son, and his name was Jesus. And Jesus lived. Jesus performed some miracles. Jesus taught. Jesus did all kinds of things. And then Jesus did what no one thought Jesus was going to do because no one thought God was going to do it. Jesus died. And no one thought God was going to die. There wasn't even a theological category for God dying. And up until that point... The people who followed him most closely would have said, we think he's the Messiah. I mean, have you seen the miracle? Have you seen the teaching? Have you, have you experienced what we've experienced? And, and we've seen so much, such extraordinary. But when he died, basically all of his closest followers deserted him. And over the next three days, um, they were uh, probably in all kinds of, of, of you know, mental and emotional and theological tendencies to say, what do we do? We had thought and we had hoped. In fact, if you, you know, read the scriptures and you have read this, when Jesus appears to a couple of his disciples, they don't know it's Jesus. They're walking next to each other. And uh, one of them says, you know, Jesus talks to them. They don't know it's Jesus. And they're saying, you know, what are you guys talking about? They're saying, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He's, Jesus says, what do you mean? And they said, you know, do you live under a rock? Basically, there was one that we had hoped was the Messiah. In other words, we thought he was, we had hoped he was, we thought perhaps that he was finally the one that God was going to send, that all of the prophets had talked about. But apparently he wasn't because he died. And over the next 40 days, Jesus would reveal himself, would show up, not in like Casper's, the ghost type of way, but he would show up in physical form. He would teach the disciples. He would teach the apostles. He would teach those closest to him. And then he would show up to big groups of people of 500 at one time or over 500, 500 men specifically because they were the ones who could give testimony in their culture. Well, eventually the church starts Jesus goes up for the last time. A couple days later, the Holy Spirit comes down. Peter stands up, gives this sermon, and about 3,000 people come to faith. The 3,000 men come to faith. Probably 6,000 people in total come to faith in Jesus that day. And so now the church is an actual church. It's not just a belief. It's a church. And they've got to figure out what to do. And so they meet together. They pray together. And um, in chapter 3, same thing happens, right? So uh, Peter and John are walking down the road, and they're about to go into the temple. And, and they see this guy that's sitting there on the, uh, on the side of the road as they're you know, just outside of the gate. And it's this guy that had been lame from birth. And again, if you know, you know the Bible and you know that doesn't mean like he didn't have any friends. He was just so lame from birth. Like he, he couldn't walk from birth and he was disabled. And, and he looks at him and, and John and Peter looks at him and says, hey, look at me, look at me. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. 
Feet become, you know, strengthened. Ankles become straight. And all of a sudden, the guy can jump. He starts jumping. He starts leaping. He says, he's praising God. He won't let go of Peter and John. And so as everybody sees this guy, and we don't know what his name is. I'm just going to call him Frank because I like that. So, you know, Frank is just jumping and leaping and praising and jumping and leaping and doing all stuff. And he won't let go of Peter and John. So everybody looks at Peter and John and says, how did this happen? And they use that opportunity as they had served this particular guy. They use that opportunity to tell everybody about Jesus. Now, now here's why I say all that. They were about to run into the end of the honeymoon period of Christianity. And if you know, you've been in a relationship, you know what that honeymoon period is like, right? The, the very first time you go on a date with, you know, with, with your you know, maybe future spouse or something you hope is their future spouse. In fact, you still hope it's, their future, it's your future spouse. In fact, you guys have been dating for like two years and you're like, what is taking you so long to decide if you're my future spouse or not? Different summer for a different day, right? But, but, but you guys, man, you, you, like, you saw each other the first time and oh my gosh, and you felt so giddy, right? And you couldn't take your eyes off her. And she was just sitting there thinking, oh, that's cute. And you're creepy, but I don't really know. You know, and then you go on a number number of dates, and at some point in every relationship, um, conflict enters for the first time, tension enters for the first time. And for the very first time, the church faces external adversity. And it probably existed to some degree before that because Jesus died, right? But to this point, I mean, just people are coming to know the Lord. People are, be, are, are being healed. More people are coming to know the Lord. And this thing's just starting to grow like wildfire. Well, so as he gives this, this sermon, all of a sudden in the, in the temple, the authorities catch wind of it. And, and here's why it, I'm going, let me kind of give you an orientation for the entire subject of church this morning. What we're going to read about is what I think is the absolute most difficult thing to implement in the entire book of Acts. If you read the entire story of the early church, I think bar none, the most difficult thing to say, how do we interpret, understand, and contextualize it to today's society is they had so much boldness, it dwarfs my faith. They lived in such a way, and they talked in such a way, and they were willing to be honest in such a way that the boldness they had was remarkable. Now, what's interesting about this too is the boldness that they had was often not an unwanted boldness. The reason I say that is if you're in here and you're kind of wrestling with faith and wrestling with Christianity and do you believe and you don't know if you believe, probably what you've seen in terms of Christians being bold is just absolutely unwanted information. Right, you saw a guy and you were trying to walk into the game, and there's somebody that was screaming on the you know the corner and saying, "Repent, repent, repent!" And you're thinking, "Buddy, you ought to repent." You know, I mean, good grief! Like you're just screaming at everybody, and you know whether that's right or wrong or indifference, neither here nor there. But 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 that's perhaps your version of boldness. Now, what's fascinating is I think we are going to begin to understand over the next couple of weeks a brand new category of bold, and in that, learn how you and I in 2019 can have a similar sense of the boldness and the audacity of the story and the truth of Jesus. Never forget, I was walking into, um, well, it used to be the Tallahassee Mall. Now it's like a big piece of land. Um, <clears throat> but I was walking to Tallahassee Mall right around where Guitar Center is, and it wasn't Guitar Center at the time. It was, it was, I was late high school. Um, I was walking with one of my best friends. He wasn't a Christian. I was a Christian, and we were just sitting there walking and talking. And <clears throat> at some point, you know, he, he said, 
basically, you know, you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus. And I said, yeah, obviously. And so he said, you know, well, it doesn't seem like you talk about that very often. <laughs> you know how that goes. You're like, well, the reason is, is because, you know, I mean, we, there's a commonalities and common threads and common ground. You know, you start like explaining it away, right? But deep down I thought, you know what? You got a good point. And in fact, if you're in here, if you're not a Christian or you're wrestling with faith, you've kind of wondered this too. If people actually believe, I mean, no, they actually believe that this story, this message, this God, this Savior has the ability and is the only ability through which we can receive forgiveness, that we can go to heaven, that we can have a relationship with God. I mean, if you think that this is the ideological worldview, religious answer to salvation, it seems like it ought to be a bigger deal because it was a huge deal. And everybody was talking about yesterday how Mike Martin got 40 wins, right? Right, that was huge. And Tim Becker, what a great bat, at bat to come back from 0-2, you know, and get a sack fly, score a run. And now I was going nuts and we're texting with all of our friends. But right, when it comes to Jesus, it's like, you know, it seems like from the objective opinion, that ought to be a bigger deal. You got to talk about it more. Now, what I love is the practicality that happens in these next couple of verses. So as they, for the first time, begin to face persecution, this is how the story goes. And as they were speaking to the people, they had just told everybody who had asked about it. In the temple, lots of people started to gather. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, these were different groups, um, but the most important for this uh, statement is the Sadducees, and he explains it in the next verse. They were greatly annoyed... Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, why that annoyed them so much was because for the Sadducees, what they believed was that this life is all that there is. There is no afterlife after this life. They believed in God. In fact, someone would probably come to faith in Jesus. But what they believed was there was no resurrection. When you die... You die, and that's it. To the ground you go, and there ain't nothing happening after that. But the story of, of, of Jesus or the story of the early church was the opposite. It was when you die, it starts. When you die, eternity starts. When you die, people are going to go to a place for eternity, and, and we will all, you know, at, at some point in time, we will all stand to give an account for our lives. And the truth is, is that no one can give an account for their life and stand blameless, and we'll get to that in a minute. But their point was, is that there was a resurrection, and the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead is evidence that we will all live beyond this life. And that infuriated them. It greatly annoyed them to the point where in the next verse they had them arrested. In fact, you can read it with me in verse uh, 4. But many of those are, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. In verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number came, the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, let me tell you why I think this is um, really, really fascinating, at least for me. Well, I think it should be fascinating for everybody, so let me tell you why. What they faced was a really obvious persecution. What they faced was a very blatant, you believe this, you're talking about this, stop, or we will have you arrested. Their persecution and their boldness in the face of this persecution and adversity, again, is staggering. But the obvious thing is to draw a parallel and say, okay, so what is our modern version of this? Now, we don't face the same obvious and apparent version of persecution. 
I think we do face it, or we do face that sense of adversity. I think we view it in a much more subdued way that I think because it's so much more subdued, it's almost unidentifiable, and it is just as powerful. Here's what I think it is. Let me just follow you with this. The call of Jesus is the realization, man, I am sinful. Like, I, I, I have a past. You have a past. We all have a past. And, and God saw our past and didn't hold our past against us. That he gave us the sense of framework. He gave us the sense of morality. He gave us the law in the Old Testament. But the point wasn't to prove ourselves to be perfect. It was the opposite, in fact. It was so that we would come to the realization that we aren't perfect and that in light of a holy God, we all need forgiveness. We all need saving from ourselves, from our sinfulness. And so God knew that, saw that, imposed the law so that we would come to that realization and then gave his son for us so that we would, by putting our trust in this sacrifice that, that he made this payment, that he made similar. If I get found breaking the law, right, if I if speed, like some of you guys, you, know, you went 100 miles, or now, miles an hour down Tennessee Street this morning to try to get here, right? And if you would got pulled over, there would have been a fine. You had to pay a restitution. So the same way we couldn't pay that fine, God paid it for us in Jesus. So that's, that, that's the dynamic. But the call of Jesus subsequent to that is that you would now, I would now, we would now as Christians, people who realize God gave everything for us would turn around and give everything back to him. As Paul would say in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I that live, but he that lives in me. This life I live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is, what, this is what they understood. The call of the Christian life was not a call to unleash your maximum potential on planet Earth. It was a call to come and die just like Jesus did. It was a call to say, God, if you would do that for me, I would willingly give everything for you. The problem is we live in a culture of radical individualism. Radical individualism. You, you, you think about the, the Sadducees, and, and it made sense that this was offensive to them. Because at the core of their belief, it was much more than just simply a belief. It wasn't like, I believe 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you're trying to disprove that. Their belief, like many of our beliefs, unearthed our identity. And so this was, in so many ways, not just simply a belief, a, crux of our, a, a crisis of belief. This was a crisis of identity. And, and, and what happens in our culture, I think, is we have this narrative that the best that I can do is to fully express who I am, who I was created to be, not a call to come and die, a call to become what I am, what I was called to become. In other words, you don't have to go far to look at this. You don't have to be a Christian to think this. You just look at the narratives that we champion, right? 50 years ago, 50 years ago, the heroic narrative of our culture was this. People would go, in fact, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, people would die whether or not they agreed on who called the shots or not. They would go and they would storm a beach and they would be brutally murdered and massacred by the thousands so that we would have the right to say what we wanted to say and speak how we wanted to speak. Now we'll do that if we agree. Then the cultural narrative was that we would, if you lived on a, in rural America, if you lived on a farm, if you lived somewhere else, it was, the heroic narrative was, don't go anywhere else, don't do a bunch of stuff else. If your family needs you, the hero is the person who foregoes the potential future to make sure that they take care of their responsibilities at home. Now the narrative is the opposite. 
Leave home. Don't let home define you. Leave whatever's holding you back to come become the best you that you could become. Now, whether that's right, wrong, or different, that's honestly not the point of the sermon. But here is the point. We face as Christians this, I think, inward threat that says radical individualism is the biggest and the greatest potential that we can actualize. I think the gospel says come and die to yourself and live for God. Not that, not that in order for God to be happy with you, we have to give everything to God. But it's simply the idea that God, I don't have, like you find me acceptable, you love me no matter how I live. But because you love me, I don't, I don't live in a particular way to make you love me. You love me no matter how I live, therefore I live for you. I glorify you. My entire life is about you. And the truth is, how we understand that, I think a lot of times, gets twisted and turned around. And what's fascinating is when they faced persecution, they didn't face persecution for their beliefs. Because that belief is fine, right? I mean, belief is a belief is a belief. But what they faced was a persecution for what they did. Read it with me. So they get arrested. On the next day, the the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. Now, in case you're not familiar, um, these, he named some of those people specifically because these were the people who were the ones who were legitimately responsible for crucifying Jesus. And he's saying, this kind of sets the stage, this isn't like when Jesus would talk sometimes and he'd have a debate and you know, someone would come ask him, a teacher of the law would come ask him a question and he'd you know, give some kind of a sarcastic response or just a response. And he, They were on trial at this point. This was as if it was a court of law with the same people who about two months prior had sentenced Jesus to the cross. So they were all gathered. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. In other words, I know you guys are important. I know you guys are in charge. I I, I get that. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man and by what this man has been healed. And I love how he prefaces this. He says, come on, if you're going to question this, let's at least least examine where this question is coming from. You're examining, you know, you're, you're questioning me because of the fact that, you know, there was a guy who for 40 years walked around or didn't walk around, 40 years laid and begged and laid and begged and laid and begged. And I told him, you know, get up and walk. And so you are, you know, I, I want you to understand this. Like what I'm teaching is because the people ask me, you know, how did this happen? Where did this come from? Because I healed this person. So I'm basically being questioned for healing this person. In other words, and here's what's important about this. It was the display. It was the evidence of the people that they served that drove the question about what they believed. It wasn't this overt forcing of belief. You see, this is our problem when we think about boldness. We want to be, as Christians, oftentimes bold for the sake of bold. They were more oftentimes bold as a response for who they served. You see, we just want to sit sit there and say, this is what we believe. (laughs) But our belief isn't actually producing anything oftentimes. Right, and, and, and this is what would, later on in the verses would perplex them, is they would see what the, the disciples believed, and they would see the evidence of it. And they'd say, look, we don't believe what you believe, but we can't dispute what, what, what's happening through what you're doing. 
We don't believe what you believe, but he just pauses and says, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you in what name, but before I tell you in what name, I just want you to remember that the reason that you're asking me this question is because of the evidence of what you have seen as a result of my faith. In other words, as Christians, boldness isn't for the sake of boldness. More oftentimes, biblically, in the New Testament, boldness is a response to the questions that arise when Christians serve other people. Which means that we should serve other people. That the purpose and the point isn't boldness, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Let's continue to read. Continues. He says, if we're being you know, good and examined by this good deed, verse 10, let it be known to you, or to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, or by him, this man is standing before you well. So let me just connect these dots. This one who, who, by the way, you crucified, this wasn't like the, you know, derivative you of like, okay, like because of our sinfulness, we've rejected, we've rebelled against God. He said, no, 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 you guys were, were legitimately the ones in the court who said crucify him and you gave him over. He was crucified. By, by him, the guy who you crucified, this guy was healed again. This is the evidence. So let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by that name, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by this man he is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which, by which we must be saved. And I love this. Because this, this was an Old Testament reference that they were incredibly familiar with. They would have had this reference memorized. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's saying, come on. For the first time in history, it's not the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. The stone has now been rejected. And by the way, you're the builders. It's almost like he's infusing in, uh, dignity into these folks. He's in the same, come on. You shouldn't have been the rejectors. You should have been the architects of the early church. This was not a call to, to total condemnation. He's, he's saying, hey, you were the ones that were in the position that you had the ability, you had the authority. You ought to be the architects of the temple that God is creating. And let me just tell you, there's no other name. There's no other name. There's no other name by which people will be saved. Because all other names are, a, are, are at best an advance to try to make myself good enough for God's good graces. But again, the understanding is that we're not. And we were never supposed to be. I mean, I just, some of us were raised in a Christianity, especially if you're raised in a Southern Christianity. Let's be a good person, attend church, bow your head, fellas, take off your hats because God can't hear you if you've got a hat on your head, you know, and, and, and we're all going to circle up and hold hands and lace for grace, you know. Jesus, come on, it's, it's none of that. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his death that paid the penalty that we couldn't pay. And so they don't know what to do with this, frankly. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. I do not know what made them realize that they were uneducated. I don't know if they like talked like they were from, you know, Perry slash Wakulla, you know, and they're like, dude, hadn't been to college, 0% chance on homies, you know, like that just ain't happening. We don't know, maybe a Galilean accent, something like that. But, but for whatever reason, they said, okay, these guys are common. These guys are uneducated, but we're astonished at the boldness, which as a side, it's interesting that they were astonished, not by the miracle that had happened, the guy that could now walk, they were astonished by the boldness. Side note that I don't even know what the implications are for that, but pray about it. Anyways, verse 14, um, are, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. So this is huge. They make the connection. We see what's happened. We see that the way they're talking and we can't help but connect that this is, this is similar to what Jesus used to do. He used to see, he used to speak so boldly, but the evidence of what he would do was just so phenomenal that, that, that we didn't know what to do with it. So verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What if that verse defined the church? What if that verse defined the church? But seeing what had happened, but seeing, I mean, can you believe a group of people is that selfless? Can you believe a group of people would be willing to serve that much? Can you believe a group of people would be so generous? Can you believe a group of people would, would love and would help and would serve, even if the people they were loving and helping and serving never believed what they believed, never valued what they valued, never thought that God even mattered? Can you imagine what would happen you know, if this was the reputation of the church? That there is such this miraculous sense of love and grace and acceptance. Because the entire church basically says, I have been crucified with Christ. So they saw him. <laughs> and they totally disagreed. But with what they saw, they had nothing to say. So they commanded them to leave the council. They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed. And through them it is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. <laughs> and we can't deny it. I think one of the worst questions that we ask in the church world is if we didn't exist, would our neighborhood miss us? I think that is like the bottom rung of the ladder. That's like the person who's you know, going through school and they're like, okay, if I get a 65 on this test, I think I can still get a D in the class. You know, that, 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 that's just like bottom rung. It should be, it should be <clears throat> if we weren't here, would there be such a massive hole in the community because of the way of the, the, way of the Christians poured out, loved, served, restored, helped, fed, empowered, gave away power, gave away authority. Would there be that sense that there is a massive hole, a crater in the community that the community almost doesn't know how to exist because of how the church has served? You see, when that happens, when there's, that such, when there's such a disproportionate impact given, it will drive questions. But what oftentimes we try to do in the Christian world is to drive the answers to questions nobody's asking because they haven't seen any evidence. It ought to be that there is such extraordinary evidence, it drives questions, and we're simply getting answers and responses to questions that are being asked, asked through the experience that people have seen, through the evidence of our faith. He continues. So he says, everybody knows about it, verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them back in. So they said, you know, fellas, come back in out of the hallway. You know, they called them back in. They charged them not to speak 
or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. I love their response because they don't even tell them, like, hey, I'm going to do it anyways. I don't care about you. It wasn't the sense of I don't care. They just kind of said, let me, tell, let me help you wrestle with what you're asking me to do. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, hey, you know, let me put you in my shoes. If I was asking you to listen to God or listen to you, who would you choose? I'm not going to say, and I'm not trying to be defiant. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm not trying to be pushy. I'm just trying to help you to see. If, if you were asking, if I was asking you what you're asking me, what would you do? I'm, I'm going to let you come to your own conclusion, priest. You know, I'm going to let you come to your own conclusion, you know, Peter. And I kind of say it with attitude, because honestly, I don't know how to say that without attitude. But I think they probably had a little bit more love. And they were honestly like, like hey, like, like we're just going to do what God has said to do. And so if you're asking us to choose between you and God... <clears throat> What would you choose? Now, up until this point, right, a lot of what we read as Christians is this mixture of of be selfless, be service-focused, be selfless, love, serve, that there ought to be evidence, there ought to be fruit, there ought to be things that come as as you and I daily and, you know, go and we help and we love and we serve. And then we ought to have this sense of boldness, boldness about our faith, boldness about our belief. But again, the problem is, is we've made tons of decisions to be bold in the past. And you thought I ought to go share and I ought to go talk. And, you know, somebody asked a question and I just kind of felt like I, I sheepishly answered and I really, really wasn't fully truthful. The next verse is the most simple and dynamic answer I think he could have possibly given. When I read it, I am dwarfed by its simplicity and I am compelled by its power. He says, I'm only going to talk about the next verse, verse 20. He says, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. In other words, this boldness that you see, I'm not normally a bold person. In fact, Peter wasn't a bold person at all. Peter was the opposite. The night that Jesus died, and people were asking Peter, Peter, you know, do you know Jesus? There, there, was like a, there was like a 12-year-old girl, like a middle school girl that said, oh, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, nah, I don't know who you're talking about. Like, Peter was not bold. But what, what they would come to the conclusion of is this. We can't help but talk about what we have experienced. To reverse engineer that, I think the reason we don't talk about is because as Christians, oftentimes we don't experience I think that the experience naturally creates a willingness to share. But without that experience, it's difficult to share from your wealth of experience. But I think for many of us, right, as, as Christians, again, here and here and you follow Jesus, we experienced at some point, right? I mean, we experienced at camp, we experienced at a night, we experienced at a retreat, we experienced at a thing, we experienced at a, at a mission trip. But just like anything else, you experienced at some point in time, but over time, that experience fades. You went um, on a mission trip, and man, it was so incredible, and it was so life-changing, and for the first time you experienced, it was, it was a horizon-broadening experience, and you experienced true poverty for the very, I mean, abject poverty for the very first time. People, you don't even know how they could live. 
And you came back and you thought, oh my gosh, it's so crazy. They don't have anything and they're just so happy. It's because things don't make you happy. But nonetheless, you know, you experienced that and you, and you like for the first time, you like had tons of pictures, right? And you, um, you downloaded ProPresenter or you downloaded PowerPoint and you just like uploaded all your little things and to everybody who was looking. You just click, 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 click. But what happened? Two weeks later, two months later, two years later, it fades. This is why I think as Christians... The individualistic idea of society has helped us to buy into the idea that the reason why it's important for you and I to experience God on a daily basis is simply for our own spiritual growth and maturation. This is why maturity drives mission, because experiencing God daily flows into a willingness and a desire to talk about him. Right? I mean, you go to a restaurant, and it's fantastic, and you want to talk about it. You go to a restaurant, and let's say, I mean, it's got the most, incredibly, um, it's got the most incredible food. I mean, it's just always cooked perfectly. Um, wonderful service, great price. You know, we're going to just quote-unquote call that Chick-fil-A for now, right? But, like, but, man, you go out day after day, and, you know, man, I have two Polynesians, four Polynesians, 100 Polynesians, you know, my, my pleasure. And you're like, oh, my gosh, like this is God's gift to planet Earth. And, and, and you talk about it. And I think as Christians, again, the, the problem is, is we don't experience God in his word. A lot of times we look and we say, man, well, if we had, a, I had the prophets of the Old Testament. No, you wouldn't. And here's why. Because the, project, the prophets were almost always debated as to whether they were actual prophets or not. Nobody was sure. It just helps us to look through the lens of antiquity and through scripture. And there was one person in the entire kingdom that heard from God. Like he has given us his word. He has given us the ability to go boldly before his throne in prayer. He's given us the opportunity to join together in groups, to join together in worship, to join together in so many different ways and experience him. But I think the problem at its core is not that we have a lack of boldness. We have a lack of experience with God. And I think because of a lack of experience with God, we have a lack of boldness. Now, that's you. That's not condemnation. That's just saying, man, we are free to pursue God. We will never have a stronger ministry. We will never have a stronger ministry than we have a daily experience with God. And if we do, we will fall. We will never have a stronger ministry than our daily experience with God. And if we do, if our ministry exceeds our daily experience with God, then all of a sudden our platform becomes bigger than our foundation. And that's a recipe for failure. For some of you, that's, again, why you don't like church. Because you've seen that over and over and over again. What I love is the response to this. Finish out these last couple of verses. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And it's almost like as he's kind of telling you know, what happened, he's saying, come on. The reason, the reason this whole interaction, in fact, there would be a, another set of interactions that we're going to read over the next coming, you know, couple of weeks. There would be a set of interactions that would happen. And it wasn't because the Christians decided that we were going to say and post and do the most offensive thing we possibly can. 
Come on, as Christians, let me just ask this. I mean, if you're in here not a Christian, you're going to think, oh, absolutely. But if you're in here, you're a Christian. Come on. <clears throat> what if we actually served more than we posted on social media? What if we actually served more than we posted what we thought and what we believed more than we actually post on social media? What if more than our opinions was our actions? What if the cornerstone of the church was a reputation? What if every community, every person who wasn't really sure about Jesus, right? It, it wasn't, I don't believe in Jesus and look at all these hypocrites. What if, what if it was the opposite? What if it was, you know, man, this whole idea of this God, of this Jesus, I mean, a guy, a guy who is, you know, a, a Jewish carpenter who died, died thousands of years ago, and you're going to put your entire, you know, salvific ideological belief and worldview hanging on ancient scriptures and ancient documents. I mean, who in the world would believe that? But I tell you what. There is evidence that they believe what they believe. It's easy to disprove when there's nothing to prove. But what if that wasn't the case? That was the story of the early church. But it didn't come from a decision to all of a sudden be so provable. It didn't come from a decision to all of a sudden be so selfless. It didn't come from a decision to all of a sudden be so bold. It came because they first had seen and heard. They had first experienced a living God. Now, as I say all this, I, I know for lots of us in the room, life gets busy. And so I just want to also be transparent about this. This was probably two or three weeks ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something whatever. It doesn't matter how many weeks ago. Less than a month, Okay. So William Conley and I, the worship pastor and discipleship pastor, and he pastors about 15 different things at our church. He's fantastic. But we, we meet every Friday, and, and we talk about um, just life and accountability. And I just kind of realized, and, and you come to this realization too, it's not that you devalue time with God. It's that um, you, in fact, do value time with God, but just the honest rhythm of your life has, has shown that it, it isn't as regular as you want it to be. Not that it was non-existent, but I just kind of looked and I said, you know, I'm just not happy. I'm just not happy with how much time I've spent with God lately. I just, I had a rhythm and some things happen in life and some transition happen in life. And if you have young kids, you know this, right? As soon as you get into like a good rhythm of life, all of a sudden life changes and you're like, I mean, you're, the whole thing is, is, is you're fighting you know, to kind of gain your ground again. And so um, we had gone through some transition and it was, you know, good transition, but transition in the lesson. So I had lost for me what was a rhythmic pattern time with God. And I was still spending time with God. It was just sporadic. And so I talked to him and I said, hey, here's, here's what I need for the next week, for the next couple of weeks. <clears throat> Don't ask me, you know, so we would kind of check in and say, this is kind of how I'm doing spiritually. I need you to ask me specifically how many days this week I've spent with God. How many days this week I've specifically spent with his word, which for me, by the way, is also outside of sermon prep time. Because that's wildly easy to do. That you just decide, oh, well, you know, I spent like two hours, you know, three hours, ten hours. Not ten hours, but not a long time. But, you know, I spent a lot of time preparing for this message. I mean, I was doing commentaries and all that stuff. So now let me go have a quiet time. It's like, come on. I, 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 there's just other stuff going on. And so I kind of got out of the room. I said, I just need you to ask me that because I value that. But right now, my life doesn't show that I value that. I think that's really the problem of what happens with us as Christians. We value it. We know it's important. We're just not willing to be honest with ourselves. Now, if you want a pastor who's never missed a quiet time, man, there's probably great churches in town that that's true of. But from time to time, I catch myself. And I think, you know what? This is so important. I cannot neglect my daily experience in time with God. So if as you're listening to this, you're thinking, man, I just, man, that's, that's my life. Hey, welcome to the party. And I'm going to invite you to go beyond that. I'm going to invite you to daily experience 
through his word. I went and downloaded, you know, I already had the U version. I just went and got a, a Bible reading plan and so I could just check it off daily. So here's what I want to invite you to do. Not decide to be bold. Not decide to be selfless. Not decide to die to self. I'm going to invite you to daily experience God. Start reading one chapter a day. Book of Luke. Start chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. A day at a time. And I promise you, as we experience Jesus daily, as we experience him in his word as he speaks to us and as we speak to him through prayer, the evidence of our life, we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. You will be more loving. You will be more gracious. You will be more forgiving. You will be more selfless. But it's not because you decided to do any of that stuff. It's not because you decided to be bold. It's because it's like Peter said and John said. We can't help but talk about the experience that we've had. And what if that was the reputation of the church? Not I can't help but impose my belief. But I can't help but to just, out of the overflow of my experience, share and serve. I think that would be radically different. And I think that might be divisive, but I think at least there would be evidence. People would say, man, I will never believe that. But good grief, I can't dispute what I have seen through them. So here's how we're going to end. Before we go back and we go in the parking lots and you, know, you pick your kid up and you stop by a new person's desk and all that kind of stuff, I just, I, we're just going to take a do one more song. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to press that in this song as we're singing it, this song is, is a prayer. And so perhaps for you it's singing, perhaps for you it's closing your eyes, perhaps for you you're just sitting there and you're praying. But just take a minute before we go back out and we go back into you know, all the things and the busyness and you've got 10 different calls and five different texts to respond to. Before we go back into that, just to take a moment to quiet ourselves, to experience God and to begin the daily pursuit of that starting today. Because I think there is still a faith alive today that is so palpable, that is so evident that is so selfless it will baffle the world but it comes through a daily experience with Jesus so let's pray